Amen. Well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, worship team. Um, tonight, I'm going to give a disclosure. I, I said to somebody on the way out this morning, we're looking at the book of Leviticus tonight, and their face dropped. <laughs> right? Their face dropped. And that's okay, because this is one of these common misconceptions uh, about the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the least preached from book in the whole of Scripture. It's the one that preachers up and down the country and across the continents tend to avoid like the plague because it's a list of rules. It's a list of rules. You see, it follows on from the book of Exodus and we've been journeying through the books of the Old Testament and we're on week three uh, of that together. But it follows on from the book of Exodus where God has entered into a covenant relationship with the people of Israel. He has said to them, you will be my people and I will be your God. He's given them ordinances. He's given them commandments to follow in this covenant relationship with him. But the people of Israel very quickly manage to fall short of that standard that God sets. Uh, And they go their own way and they break their side of the covenant with God. Uh, and in the in the latter chapters of the book of Exodus, and we didn't necessarily touch on this last time because it feeds into the book of Leviticus, um, but in the latter chapters of the book of Exodus, we're told the story of the building of the tabernacle, the place where God's presence, the presence of God, will dwell among the people uh, in this holy of holies within the tabernacle and that feeds us in now into the book of Leviticus and the book of Leviticus if we had to say and summarize it in one phrase the book of Leviticus is all about the holiness of God it's all about the holiness of God You see, God has promised his presence with the people. He's entered into covenant relationship with them. They've broken their end of the bargain, but God is gracious and God makes a way. But even the disobedience of the people and even the graciousness of God, because of that disobedience, there are consequences. And the presence of God does dwell among the people, but with conditions with conditions. And the very first verse in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, it says that the Lord called to Moses from the tent. There were barriers in place. There were barriers between God and the people. Because God is a a holy God. Um, God is a holy God. And you maybe hear that a lot in church. In fact, I know for a fact that you hear that a lot in church because I say that a lot in church. And many preachers and pastors say that God is a holy God. But what does it mean to be holy? It means to be altogether set apart. It means to be unique. It means to be clean. It means to be pure. And God in his holiness, God in his purity, God in his cleanness, God in his uniqueness and in his set-apartness, his holiness is too much for people to handle. His holiness is perfection. His holiness is everything the way 
that it should be. There is perfection. And because of the breaking of this covenant relationship, as the people of Israel went their own way and continually fell into sin, the first verse of Leviticus sets and paints a sad picture that God calls to Moses from the tent. Moses can't enter into the tent. He can't be in the presence of God. There are these barriers that are in place. And God is a holy God. And all the way throughout the book of Leviticus, there is a recurring phrase. There is a recurring command. There is a sentence that comes up time and time and time again. It firstly comes up in Leviticus chapter 11. And this is God speaking. He says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves then uh, there, there and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God sets out the stall here, and he says, I am a holy God, and if you're going to be my people, The way that you promised you would be, you're going to need to be a holy people. Because as a holy God, I cannot be around things which are unholy. In fact, there is a a story in Leviticus chapter 10 where priests have been appointed. And we're going to look a little bit at that later on this evening. But priests have been appointed and they have made a mockery of the presence of God. They have not kept the laws. They have not kept the commands. And they go into the presence of God and the scriptures tell us that they are consumed by God's holiness. They are consumed by his perfection. And they never leave that tent again. They are consumed within it. So Leviticus 11, be holy therefore as I am holy. Leviticus 19, God is speaking to Moses and he's saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again, God commands, be holy as I am holy. And Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 7, consecrate yourselves therefore, And be holy, for I am the Lord your God. The book of Leviticus is all about the holiness of God. And a God who commands his people to be holy also. A God who commands his people to be holy, just as he is holy. A God who longs for relationship. A God who longs to presence himself with his people. But a God who knows that unless his people are holy, he'll not be able to do that again. I I, I don't know if you've ever tried to put yourself in the shoes of God, metaphorically speaking. If you've ever tried to put yourself in the mind of God. And... uh, as a preacher and as I read the scriptures, sometimes I read the scriptures and I think, I wonder what, what was God's motive behind saying that? I wonder what was going through his mind as he declared these things. 
And as a holy God who cannot be around an unholy people but longs, and it's all the way painted throughout Scripture that he longs for relationship, that he longs to presence himself, I wonder if God's mind went back to those evenings in the garden where he would come and presence himself with Adam and Eve in the cool of the night, in the twilight hours, in those moments where the sun sets on one day and another begins to begin. I I wonder if God's mind went to those moments where he presenced himself with his people. Because sin had not yet entered the world. Sin had not yet corrupted the human nature. Sin had not yet made for a divide between God and his perfect creation. But the book of Leviticus paints this picture, regardless of whether that was what went through God's mind at the time or not, because we don't know, because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, the scripture says. But the book of Leviticus paints this picture of a holy God who longs for his people to be holy. Uh, and that is worked out throughout the book of Leviticus. And we're not, we don't have time, quite frankly, to go through all of the different ways in which he commands and lays out for his people to be holy. He gives them commandments, anything ranging from don't touch dead bones right through to don't eat bacon. Some of them, as we read in our 21st century context, are very strange. And we look at them and we go, ooh, what's that all about? That's a bit bizarre. That's a bit restrictive. And something that's very important for us to realize is this. That God did not give us and did not give his people these rules and regulations, these commandments. He did not give them to act as a straitjacket that would restrict them. But he gave them in love because he knew that should the people be able to keep these laws, that the result would be that he could presence himself with them. The holy God could be with a holy people. And the call of God in the book of Leviticus is the same as the call of God to us today. The scriptures say in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is God incarnate, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's desire in his holiness back then was that his people would be holy as he is holy. And the call of God to us as his people today in the 21st century, in 2020, 2020, and the year in which we find ourselves, the call is the same. To be a holy people. But we have an advantage that the people then did not have. We have Jesus. Jesus who made a way. Jesus who laid down his life. Jesus who came and lived that perfect, holy, upright life. 
laid down his life and made way for us to have relationship with him. So that as I shared this morning, that on that judgment day, whenever we stand before God, he will not see the sin. He will not see the wrongdoing. But if we have relationship with Jesus, he will see the blood of his son. And he will say, that's enough. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your eternal rest. And the book of Leviticus teases out a number of different things. Two of which we're going to look at in addition to the holiness of God this evening. But the book of Leviticus paints a picture of what was required to be the holy people of God. And the first one was this. An unblemished sacrifice. In other words, something that was perfect. Something that was not corrupted. Something that had not fallen victim to the pain and the wrath of this world. And in Leviticus chapter 22, we read this, verses 17 to 21. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, and Aaron's his brother here, and his sons, and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offerings for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord. Now, we'll stop there. There were five different types of offerings that the people brought to God. Two of them were thanksgiving offerings. Two of them were offerings that they brought and they said, God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the holy God. We thank you that you are the God that brought us up out of Egypt. The God who brought us out of slavery and is now leading us into the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Two of the offerings were like that. The other three offerings were offerings where they lamented. Where they said, God, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for the wrong that we have done. I'm so sorry for the wrongs that I have committed. I'm so sorry for the wrongs that the people of Israel, my people, have committed. I'm so sorry for the way that we the ways that we have fallen short. And God says, when anybody presents a burnt offering as his offering or any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a meal without blemish. Without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable to you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd uh, or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. And then the rest of that chapter goes on to talk about very specific things. So anything from it can't have a bruise to it can't have a cut. It's got to be the best of the best. You've got to offer the best that you have here. The best bull that you have, the best sheep that you have, or the best goat that you have. Now they didn't have paper money in the way that we do. We, like, we prefer paper money to, to coins, don't we? 
But they didn't, they didn't have paper money in those days. Their currency was bulls. Their currencies were sheep. Their currency was goats. Their currency was their livestock. That's how you could tell somebody's wealth by what they had. And God here is saying, whenever you bring an offering, be it a thank you offering or be it an I'm sorry offering, whenever you bring an offering, make it the best that you have. In fact, if it's not the best that you have, if it's not the creme de la creme, the cream off the top, I don't want it. And I think there's a, there's, there's a lesson there for us today as well. A number of our people have spent the past while gutting the church so that we can get some essential work done. Uh, and the amount of rubbish that we've chucked out is pretty ridiculous. Would that be fair? Yeah. And we have this, and, and I have fallen victim to this myself in my own life. So I say this as confession's good for the soul as well, isn't it? But sometimes we have this mentality of, I don't need this anymore, so I'll give it to the church. I don't need this anymore, so I'll give it to the church. And then somebody gives something 50 years ago, and we won't chug it out because such and such gave it. You know? And, and, I, and it's funny, and we're laughing about that. And, but the reality here is God's saying, I don't want your rubbish. I want the best that you have. I remember a, a, an old uh, preacher, and I've told a few of you guys this story, uh, an old preacher uh, growing up, and he told a story from the pulpit, and then he told me it in private um, about 10 years later uh, as well. But he, he told the story of a man who, who came to him and says, Pastor, uh, Pastor, I really just felt that, um, that God was saying I was to give you a car, which is amazing, absolutely amazing, brilliant, what a blessing. And he really needed a car at this point in time uh, because his old one was, 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 had seen better years. And he goes, oh, go on, son, go on. And the guy says, so what I did yesterday was I went out and bought a new car and the guy's eyes lit up. He was delighted. He was like, and it's coming on Thursday. It's coming on Thursday. Um, so why don't you come round to the house on Thursday and you can drive the old one home and you can take the old one for yourself. And he jokingly said to him, son, I don't want your old car, but I'll take the new one. <laughs> And he ended up getting the new one, which is hilarious because the guy was so convicted. Because he said, he said, you know what, which is hilarious. You wouldn't get away with that now, like, would you? Right? But he, but he said to him, he says, if God told you to give me a car and as a result of that you went and bought a new one for yourself and gave me the old one. Did God tell you to go and buy a new car for yourself? The guy went, no. No. So on that following Thursday, that pastor got a brand new car. But there you go, right? I'm not, I don't want a car. We have a lovely car. And I don't feel that God's telling anybody to give us the car. But the point of that story, that real life event, is this. That God doesn't want our leftovers. God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants an unblemished sacrifice. He wants the best that you have to offer. And that doesn't just go with material things. But it goes with our attitudes. It goes with our hearts. Would we be a people who developed an attitude of gratitude to God? He actually said, God, you know what? 
We don't have bulls and sheep and goats these days. But what I do have to give you is myself. Why don't you take me? It's all I have to offer. It might not be much. I might be a banged up old car. But you know what? It's the best I have to offer. So here you go. And God sets out his stall and he says, to be the holy people of God, you've got to give the best that you've got. And in this case, it was the best unblemished sheep, goat or bull. And for you, it's your heart. For you, it's whatever he says for you to do. But the great thing about God, or one of the great things about God, because there are many, is this. That as God commands his people to give an unblemished sacrifice, to give the best that they have, God backs it up and he puts his money where his mouth is as well. And he gives the best that he had. It says in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 to 21, and it's always important that as we look at the Old Testament scriptures, we look for where Jesus is present in them. Because actually, this idea of an unblemished sacrifice points towards the perfect, lamb, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God who would lay down his life for the sins of the world. And 1 Peter 1 and 17 says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, and we could insert such as bulls or sheep or goats, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him, all believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God commanded an unblemished sacrifice. And in return, God gave his unblemished sacrifice. The perfect, blameless, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He who lived the perfect life, yet was tempted and tried in every way, yet was without sin. He laid down his life so that we could know God so that the holy God could have a people who would be made holy and he could spend time with them that his presence could be among them again so we look at the holiness of God we look at the unblemished sacrifice and lastly this evening we look at this word atonement atonement leviticus chapter 16 and 17 talk about and lay out the uh the ground rules for a yearly sacrifice that would be made a yearly festival (coughs) called the day of atonement we're going to read a couple of verses that give background to that then i'm going to explain a little bit more about that as well 
And then we're going to see how God once again, once again, makes a once for all, once for all sacrifice for atonement (coughs) for our sins. So it says in Leviticus 16 verses 6 to 10, it says Aaron, again Aaron is the high priest at this point, it says Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now the tent of meeting within the tent of meeting was the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, the presence of God dwelt there. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the goats. In essence, he shall flip a coin. One lot for the Lord and another lot for Azil. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azel shall be present alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azel. You read that and if you're anything like me, you read that in isolation and you get confused. What is this all about? In essence, and in very quick layman's terms, what happens is this. That there are two goats. One goat is sacrificed to God as a sin offering on behalf of the high priest and on behalf of all the people. This happens once a year and it is called the atoning sacrifice. On the day of atonement where there is a, effectively a nationwide I'm sorry offering. Lord we're sorry for the things that we have done. We're sorry for the sins that we have committed and the high priest sacrifices one of these goats To symbolise that this has happened. The other goat is what's called the scapegoat. Have you ever heard of the term a scapegoat? And have you ever been made a scapegoat for something? But this is a scapegoat. And ceremonially what happens here is this. And it's all very symbolic. That the priest ceremonially puts the sins of the people onto this goat as well. And then this goat is sent out of the camp, away from the people and away into the wilderness where it will eventually die. That sounds very bizarre to us, but these things, these things represent something. The first goat represents the repentance of the people and the turning away of the wrath of God. Lord, we're sorry. We're so sorry for what we have done. The other goat represents how an unholy people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. So there's I'm sorry, and then there's exile. God cannot presence himself with un holy people and year after year after year on the same day of every year they reckon it was in the middle of July they didn't have bands and banners like we do in July but they had a national day of atonement where the priest would come and do these things the people would repent of their sins and then they would go about their business 
and they would appease the wrath of God for another year. <clears throat> but where's Jesus in all of this? Again, as I say, we read the scriptures, we read the Old Testament, and we've got to go, where's Jesus in this? Because it's all a part of God's big plan. Romans chapter 3, picking up at verse 21, says, But now, apart from the law of righteousness of God, has been made, not, not, uh, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. So just as the priest brought the goat or the two goats, sacrificed one and sent one off into the wilderness. God presented Jesus as a once-for-all sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies who have faith in Jesus. Year after year, the people via the high priest who offered the sacrifice tried to appease the wrath of God. The wrath of a holy God who saw his people become an unholy people. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, this unblemished sacrifice, this perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the wrath of God was satisfied once and for all. <clears throat> there was no more need for these sin offerings because he was offered up as the sin offering for us. And through him, the wrath of God was satisfied. Through him, we could be atoned. Our sins could be atoned for. Through him, we could be at one with a holy God. Through him, we could become the holy people of God. We're going to sing a song as we close very shortly. And one of the lines says, Not my own righteousness, but Christ within, living and reigning and saving from sin. Jesus fulfilled the commandments that were laid out. Jesus didn't come to abolish them, but he fulfilled the requirements. He made it possible for us as the people of God, the people of a holy God, to be the holy people of God.
and the book of Leviticus ends. And next, well, in a couple of Sunday evenings time, we're going to be looking at the book of Numbers. And just as Leviticus started with the Lord God spoke to Moses from within the tent, from the tent, the book of Numbers chapter 1 and verse 1 says this. It says, the Lord God spoke to Moses in the tent. Do you notice the subtle difference? The book of Leviticus helps to remove the barrier between the holy God and an unholy people. He gives them a way to become that holy people and remove the barrier. And Moses could not enter the tent as the ambassador of the people at the start of the book of Leviticus. But by the start of the very next book, God spoke to Moses from within the tent. And the holy God welcomes you as his holy people. He presences himself with us. The scriptures say that where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of them and that to bless. Jesus has come. The unblemished sacrifice, the the atoning sacrifice. Jesus has come and he's made a way. And we, as the people of God, are called unto holiness. May we be a people who live in that holiness and please and worship our God. Let's pray as the band come and prepare themselves to